Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. Florida is one of several states in which felons' voting rights aren't automatically granted after they serve their sentences. A federal judge has blasted as unconstitutional Florida's system of allowing a clemency board full discretion to restore voting rights. The judge said the policy violates the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution. He also stated that a person who has served his or her sentence and completed probation should be able to vote and not have to, quote, kowtow, unquote, to a board that can use any reason to accept or deny the person's application for restoration of voting rights. John Sherman, senior counsel of the Fair Elections Legal Network, which filed nine ex-felons lawsuits over whether they could vote, lauded the ruling. He commented, quote, the state's arbitrary restoration process, which forces former felons to beg for their right to vote, violates the oldest and most basic principles of our democracy, end quote. We've just learned that on January 19th, refugees staged another uprising on the prison island of Lampedusa off the Italian coast. Thousands of refugees from Tunisia and other African countries are held there after attempting dangerous sea voyages to escape war and poverty. They're generally deported back to the North African coast, which is itself increasingly dotted with migrant detention facilities funded by the European Union to prevent refugees from escaping in the first place. During this uprising, stone throwing caused injuries to Italian military police. According to The Intercept, Nathaniel Lewis, a researcher from the People's Policy Project, argues in a new report that the racial incarceration gap is a result of economic oppression first and not racism. He says, quote, It could be that mass incarceration is primarily a system of managing poor people rather than black people, and the racial disparities show up mostly because black people are disproportionately represented in the lower classes, unquote. Lewis says his research suggests that one of the best ways of reducing the total prison population in the U.S. would be to implement social policies that would tackle poverty, the education gap, and other class divisions. Lewis says that one implication of his study, quote, is that policies aimed at alleviating class disparities may be the most effective way of helping black people and all people subject to being ground up by the criminal justice system, unquote. This is a letter updating us on Operation Push. This one is written on January 15th, Martin Luther King's Day. It is kind of outlines an interview or an interrogation, I should say, between a security threat group um, sergeant and one of our contacts inside. Um, um, He starts by telling us that the sergeant mentioned that today they are triple staffed and they've got so much stuff, they're stepping on each other's toes. He had a list of names with him who had received letters from the FTP address about a push strike. He said, this is why me and these seven other inmates are confined under investigation and to keep anything from spreading. They were informed not to speak about it until today. He mentioned that other institutions are also on lockdown around Florida. 
And because these other inmates are, and I are known to receive FTP mail at some point, we are considered a security threat. He said out of all the other inmates he's spoken with, he believes that I know exactly what's going on. He also asked me if I had access to a cell phone. I laughed and told him no. He told me that the gang sergeant at my previous institution called him and informed him that I was here. I said, I don't appreciate being tossed in confinement every time they assume I'm involved in something. He replied, as long as you're communicating with these people, you're always going to be labeled a security threat and you're probably always going to be put under investigation, which means confinement during investigations. You are placed in administrative confinement, which they can extend almost endlessly without giving reason as to why you're locked up. Okay, he goes on to say, in conclusion, classification knew very well why I was under investigation. They were purposely being closed-lipped about it to ensure that word didn't spread. All inmates that received mail from FTP address were thrown under investigation two weeks prior to today, the 15th. They've been calling every gang sergeant at every institution, resulting in these investigations. Because I communicate with you, I'll most likely be thrown under investigation every time they catch wind of something being organized. He mentioned that events are becoming more and more often. First, 9916, then 9917 and 81917, and now January 15th. So they're definitely zeroing in on FTP, their websites, and the inmates for FTP right, as I also predicted. I expect to be thrown under investigation again in the future of this year and or transferred to who knows where. I'll keep you posted with a detailed description of what's going on. This week, we switch up our format and are broadcasting an interview between Nicole Siegel and Garrett Felber on the role of the Nation of Islam in prison life and prisoner struggle. Beginning in the middle of the last century, the Nation of Islam built a strong presence among black prisoners, drawing together not only disparate religious traditions, but also neglected experiences of struggle, ranging from the early civil rights movement to black conscientious objection during World War II. Silber then situates Malcolm X, the best known of the Nation of Islam organizers to come out of prison. Within this broader context of collective struggle and political reaction in 1950s America. Nicole and Garrett are currently both fellows at the Warren Center at Harvard. We'll finish their conversation in next week's episode as they cover the relationship of Nation of Islam to other forms of prison struggle. What does the title of your book mean, Those Who Know Don't Say, The Nation of Islam in the Carceral State? So it's taken from, it's the second half of a phrase, those who say don't know and those who know don't say. And this was a sort of enigmatic response given by members of the Nation of Islam when asked about their politics. The reason I'm using it as the title is because the first half of it, those who say don't know, sort of refers to a set of carceral actors, prison officials, wardens, police, as well as intellectuals writing about the Nation of Islam, who all were sort of positing a particular notion of what the Nation of Islam is often referring to it as the black Muslims. And that generally was a sort of combination of being marginal to Orthodox Islam and also not quite political or part of the mainstream civil rights movement. And the second half of it, those who know don't say, is the nation of Islam itself and sort of its subversive politics in the sense that it performed a politics that it often didn't name 
and there were very strategic reasons for doing so. So it begins in 1930 in Detroit. The story goes that this mysterious silk peddler, W.D. Farad, comes to Detroit and takes people like Elijah Muhammad uh, and his wife Clara and others and puts together a sort of syncretic vision of Islam that pulls from masonry and numerology and millennialism and all of these different blossoming urban black religions like Father Divine, the Moorish Science Temple, um, the peace movement of Ethiopia and others that were arising in this period. Um, so you have the development and sort of confluence of a lot of different strains of religion that mm -hmm. had never come together before. When and how did the nation of Islam begin to be important in prisons? When did people from the nation of Islam go to prison? So it's a very specific moment in time. It's a historical break. It's World War II. And they go because of a f failure or choice not to register with the Selective Service of 1940. So there's this moment in World War II where a lot of people, for various religious and ethical, moral, political reasons, choose not to serve. And they're a relatively small portion of that larger picture, but a, a tremendous amount um, in terms of the overall membership actually go to prison for those four years. So about 150 to 200 men serve federal sentences during those years in an organization that was a few thousand. I sort of think of it as this radical laboratory in which suddenly federal prisons, 60% of people are there for various forms of draft resistance. And while the majority of them are people who are Jehovah's Witnesses who are not sort of engaged in a radical politics in the prison, for instance, Roger Axford, who is one of these civil rights organizers who's waging hunger strikes, he's teaching an English class that Elijah Muhammad's in. So they are interacting, mm -hmm. and it's, it's hard to imagine that there are ways in which this isn't a politicizing moment for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the fascinating things is, again, how all of these discrete movements come together in one place. So you have radical pacifists who come to prison protesting war as a concept and are introduced to racial justice. And you have people who are coming more from the civil rights movement and thinking about desegregation who are suddenly now thinking about radical pacifism. And you have all of these people kind of together in a place and, and coming around. And I think for the first time, many of them now are thinking about prisons. And you kind of see this in their letters is that suddenly they're thinking about the prison as well and thinking, well, why are the same sorts of imperialisms and, and fascism that I'm protesting in coming to prison? Why am I not protesting them within prisons? So federal prisons at this time are highly segregated. There's various degrees of racial segregation. At many places it's throughout, whether it's housing or the dining hall or watching a film or work crews and in other places it's just housing. The wardens like to say, I'm all for desegregating the prison. It's just not practical. I'm gonna have a riot on my hands. Or they'll say, this is not a space to experiment. So they often sort of use the presence of racial segregation outside prisons to justify inside prisons. So what winds up happening are people like Bayard Rustin in particular, Wallace Nelson, who was a radical pacifist, civil rights organizer. A lot of them start waging hunger strikes. They start this really very calculated, especially in Rustin's case, campaign to desegregate dining halls. And where the Nation of Islam comes into this is, in some cases, there's these petitions to desegregate and they're passing it around and they're really excited because a group of Muslims who are sitting at one table move to another one 
and presumably integrate that table. So they approach one of the members of the Nation of Islam and ask them to sign this petition, and they're absolutely not down. They were switching tables because people were eating pork at the other one. So the Nation of Islam's activism in prisons is largely a religious one. It's around issues relating to worship, to the preponderance of pork in prison diets, which is very high. A lot of prisons actually raise livestock and sort of use that pork. There are a couple of situations where people like Rustin and other civil rights activists who are tr trying to desegregate dining halls do try to reach out to members of the nation, but to no avail. So in this period when the Nation of Islam is protesting their lack of religious freedom, basically, which is the World War II period still, are they a big problem for the prisons and are they a big important group of activists that the state is aware of and worried about? No, which is really frustrating to me because I went to all these different archives looking for what I thought would be a, a, a concern of the state, huh. which is that you have, you know, 200 or so black people saying they're registered with Allah and refusing to fight in World War II. And the fact was, they are considered by most prison officials to be model prisoners during this period, huh. distinct from someone like Rustin, who's causing all sorts of problems, and they're shipping these radical COs throughout the system to try and break up their By CO, you mean conscientious yes, objector, yes, not, not corrections, corrections officer. officer. Right. Yes, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's confusing. fine. Just to be clear. That's great. When did the Nation of Islam become a significant political presence in prisons? So the first gesture of that or, or trace that we get is with Malcolm X in the late 40s. Malcolm X converts in 1948, which mm -hmm. is two years roughly into his sentence. He starts reading and he's pouring over the dictionary word by word, and he joins the debate team at Norfolk. And his brother Philbert writes him about this new movement, and he cryptically says, you know, just don't smoke and eat pork. And Malcolm mm. at this point describes himself in the autobiography as atheistic. He says that he was called Satan by the other prisoners. And eventually through these letters with his family, he finally sort of submits as he says, to Allah and converts and writes to Elijah Muhammad. There's a couple of points about Malcolm's conversion in prisons that actually illuminate what the Nation of Islam is doing and what Islam in prisons looks like in this period. We can see through the other Malcolm, which is Malcolm Jarvis, known as Shorty. So Shorty is the guy who conks his hair, he's the uh -huh. friend who sort of introduces him to this underculture in Roxbury and Harlem. They commit these series of house burglaries in the Boston area, and they both go to prison together. And in the autobiography, Shorty falls off mm -hmm. at that point. We last see him sort of rattling the cage in the courtroom. And then he appears after Malcolm's out on the street and they meet and Malcolm, you know, starts talking about the nation of Islam and Shorty's like, whoa, what is this religious kick you're on? And then, and then Malcolm says it was like old times. But in fact, Malcolm Jarvis converts to Islam before Malcolm X does. And both of them seem to have been exposed to Islam actually through a Boston man named Abdul Hamid, who's not with the Nation of Islam, but with another movement, the Ahmadiyya movement. And the same way that Malcolm in prison is 
taking to debate and great books, Malcolm Jarvis is taking to music composition and playing in the jazz orchestra. And if you look at his visitor list, it's this whole Muslim community of men who have converted uh -huh. in the jazz scene, especially in Boston. So there's all these Muslim jazz musicians who are constantly visiting around the same time in 1948. Amongst them, not Muslim, Duke Ellington. Another thing that Malcolm sort of takes some liberties with in uh, his autobiography is these all become his friends. Another great reference in one of Malcolm's letters is he talks about trying to convert Lionel Hampton. He has this great poem at the top of one of the letters that Malcolm Jarvis writes to Hamid. And the poem at the top is written by Red Little, who's Malcolm. And he talks about the relationship between music and religion. And he says something to the effect of that music without someone to perform it is like religion without someone to believe. Mm -hmm. Paraphrasing. The two Malcolms are joined by this set of brothers, the Thaxton brothers at Norfolk, and the four of them make some demands. One of them is that they want cells to face east towards Mecca, they want to grow their beards out, and they refuse typhoid inoculations. This is the first sense that we get, besides one letter during World War II that says that Muslims are complaining of not having full religious rights, but of an actual sort of action against, and Malcolm by 1950 is writing the commissioners quite frequently and mm -hmm. talking about solitary confinement. And he says like, there's a Muslim brother being held in solitary and you're going to regret this. And, mm -hmm. you know, so, so we see through Malcolm's politicization also the first traces of a sort of active political community mm -hmm. in prisons, but it's not necessarily just this individual religious transformation. It's actually a communal experience and a that political That seems to one. be the lesson of thinking of Malcolm as a historical figure is that everything he narrates as individual was actually collective. kind of follow this through Malcolm. In 52 he gets out and there's this tremendous growth of the nation outside prisons. I failed to mention one thing that he does is he's at this very unique space of Norfolk prison colony, which is conceived as a community prison that has this rich intellectual mm -hmm. life, a library, a quadrangle, what are called inmate councils where prisoners and prison staff come to joint decisions on the administering of the prison. Malcolm's at this really unique space at Norfolk, but he actually requests to go back to Charleston, which is this medieval fortress of a place that's falling apart and has none of the programs that Norfolk does. But he explicitly does it because he wants to spread Islam. Now he also then <laughs> requests to go back to Norfolk shortly thereafter and eventually stays there until he doesn't go back to Norfolk and he's out by 52. And then begins to spread Islam outside of prisons in a really spectacular way. Why is the Nation of Islam growing outside of prisons after 1952? What is it that makes so many people attracted to the Nation of Islam? So that's a great question. I think there's a lot of reasons. One is that a lot of people are coming from a black nationalist tradition of the UNIA and Marcus Garvey. And the that, UNIA, the United Negro Improvement Association. Yes. Which was big in the 1920s. Yeah. Many of the pieces, I mean, if you think about like the Fruit of Islam in the NOI and, and the Muslim Girls Training, having these kind of paramilitary gendered organizations, I mean, that's a direct... The Fruit of Islam is for... Is for men. Men. Uh -huh. And the Muslim Girls Training is for women. Uh -huh. And women do sort of domestic tasks and learn to cook and things mm -hmm. like that. And the Fruit of Islam learns judo. If you were a man, you would be in the Fruit of Islam okay. and you're trained in discipline and all of these sort of gendered male masculine skills. So there are a lot of people who join the Nation of Islam either straight out of that tradition or out of the absence of an organization such as the UNIA, which the NOI fills. 
the Nation of Islam is sort of fusing the black nationalism of the UNIA with a lot of the syncretic religious traditions of Father Divine and these other, and the Moorish Science Temple, many of those which have also sort of dwindled by the 50s. The other is just sort of its rising presence in urban, mostly northern black communities. You would see a mosque, you would see a Shabazz luncheonette, you would see clothing stores. I mean, we forget post-1960s about how important the message of black pride and self-love was in the 1950s. How is the Nation of Islam important to the rise of the prisoners' rights movement in the late 1950s and early 1960s? Largely through the beginnings of legal suits against wardens and commissioners. So lawsuits are being filed against wardens and commissioners. By whom? By Muslim prisoners. And they're doing that largely for religious reasons. For many of the same complaints that we can actually date back to the 1940s, concerns mm -hmm. about pork in the diet, the ability to wear religious medals, access to the Quran, specifically one which has an Arabic translation, and being able to communicate with outside ministers. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that the state forbids that communication is to say you can't communicate with them, not because reasons X, Y, Z, but because they have criminal records and people with criminal records can't communicate with people who are currently incarcerated. So since so many ministers are people who have been converted inside and come out, such as Malcolm X, they say, well, you can't communicate with him or Elijah Muhammad because all these people have records. They often will list what people say is their religion when they're admitted. And it's usually Baptist, Protestant, Christian religions. And whether or not they're practicing those or not, but I never have seen Muslim. And they'll list their conversion usually a couple of years later. So people get in in 56 and then convert in 57, 58. So it's primarily through converting inside. And why do you think prisons are such a fertile cauldron for conversion to Islam in this moment? In part because they sort of have a monopoly on a radical black politics inside. I think there's plenty of reasons to convert to a religion of any sort while incarcerated. It's, uh -huh. you know... That certainly happens all the time still today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that's always a piece of it. Mm -hmm. But why the Nation of Islam over another religion? I, I think it's because that message of pride and community. The Nation of Islam, I think you could make the argument, actually tr transforms the idea of community in prisons. Donald Clemmer has this, he's this famous penologist who has this book, The Prison Community, in 1940. And he talks about, and he's actually, ironically, one of the first people who has a lawsuit filed against him when he's a warden <laughs> by the Nation of Islam. But he talks about prison community in the 1940s as a series of kind of like cliques. And, there, and the idea, though, is that you do your time, you kind of stick to yourself. And what he says is that the Nation of Islam really changes that. What changes from Clemmer's sort of prison community of 1940 to the one that we see by 1960 is that suddenly this is a communal sense of incarceration and of persecution. And people are, are thinking about it as communal time that they're doing. And that, that's really different from what Clemmer articulates 20 years earlier. So there's a congruence between the growth of the Nation of Islam on the outside, for all the reasons you've just said, and the growth of the Nation of Islam on the inside, for connected and unconnected reasons, for reasons that have to do entirely with the prison environment and the repression there. Why didn't prisons allow Nation of Islam members on the inside to have Qurans with Arabic translations? I think, based on what happens, is that they are concerned about surreptitious communication in a language that prison officials can't understand. Why are they so worried about that? 
because rightfully so, um, you see, so there's this fantastic letter as, as an example from one of these prisoners at Attica who winds up filing uh, a major lawsuit that Malcolm X actually testifies mm. at the court case. This is, and, the, this is the 50s still or are we into the 60s now? Right on the bridge. Okay. And this guy Thomas Bratcher writes to Malcolm X and he says, don't write back to me. My mother will write to you with three lines in Arabic. They are using Arabic as a way to communicate with one another in ways that prison officials can't understand. So by a later period, just a few years later, prisons are actually confiscating anything in Arabic and, and having local professors try to transcribe them. I think that that's the main reason why they don't want to allow the, the Quran mm -hmm. with an Arabic translation. I mean, I'm trying to think in this period about what could be so devastating that prisoners would write to each other because it isn't yet the moment of a big prisoners' rights movement and it's not yet the moment of riots and rebellions in prison, right? That's, that doesn't start until the 1960s. Am I wrong? What's the period when a lot of prisons are really in upheaval? When does that begin? Is Attica is 1971. That's our kind of iconic moment of it. But when does the wave begin? I mean, there are examples of 10 years later at Folsom of upheaval as well. I mean, I think- 10 years after 71. Prior. And of course, they're very quick to blame the Nation of Islam. I mean, there's actually a point where there's a debate by, so the nation inside was known as the Muslim Brotherhood. So there's a debate amongst the Muslim Brotherhood at one of the prisons whether to join a strike at the prison, not because they were sort of wary of solidarity, but because they knew that they would be blamed immediately by prison officials. So the debate goes something like, well, we might as well join because we're going to be blamed anyway. And on the other hand, we shouldn't join because we can actually have some sort of escapability from this. Ten years before Attica, the Nation of Islam is absolutely at the forefront of prison officials' minds as a major concern. How did they go from being model prisoners during World War II to the forefront of prison officials' concern, sort of the, the vanguard of black radicalism on the inside? I think the answer is state repression, because the things that they're asking for are fundamental rights for, you know, freedom of religion. And what the state does is it doesn't recognize them as a, a legitimate religious formation. The states take over and over and over on the Nation of Islam is that this is a guise. They use that language all the time. A guise. This is this is black subversive political activity in the guise of religion. They say it uses mm -hmm. the cloak of religion or, you know, it's dressed up in the garb of religion. So they constantly see it as something that needs to be stopped in that sort of same, you know, the way they talk about subversive politics of other sorts. This is the moment of anti-communist frenzies, full-on high cold war. Anti-communism is the political national religion mm -hmm. and red scares are constant, right? People are really terrified of subversion in general. So that's how the Nation of Islam is being read? Yeah, I think also to add another layer, it's a moment in the mid-50s of resurgent American Judeo-Christian nationalism. So this is the moment when under God gets added on our currency. So I think there are many reasons why a black nationalist Muslim group falls outside of the bounds of what many of these people see as American citizenship and what they also see as so terrifying. This has been KiteLine. 
Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.